Chapter 10 Hunting High and Low The sun was bright at six in morning. I never really appreciated how clear, crisp and silent it could be at that time of day. I met Moose in front of the shaft as we had planned. I was nervous, and I was hoping to God that it didn't show. I arrived fully decked out in the hunting gear I had bought, camouflage and all. Moose wore a pair of faded blue jeans, a red plaid flannel shirt covered by a sleeveless gray vest and high-top boots. Upon seeing his attire and comparing it to mine, I felt I might as well have been wearing a sign on my back reading City Slicker. It was too late now and besides they all knew that I had come from the city, so my dress shouldn't be a surprise. I piled into his old Ford pickup with its see-through floorboards and heavily stained seats. We headed off to the club accompanied by the continuous rumble from its rusted-out muffler. As we rode Moose enthusiastically described the delights of the club's hunting grounds and his high expectations of a good day's take. When I got in the truck, I had noticed a strange but familiar odor, the smell of death to be precise but I said nothing. About halfway through the trip, I had to ask. What's dead in here? He motioned towards the bed of the vehicle. Stuff in the back I guess he replied. I turned to look out the back window at the bed. There it was four deer legs and two buck heads lying on a black plastic bag. I turned back to Moose who immediately noticed my perplexed expression. Picked him up a couple of days ago and forgot to put him in the fridge till I got around to working on him he answered. What do you mean? I asked. I always carry a hacksaw with me everywhere. Got one right now and he pointed under the front seat. When I see some roadkill like a big buck, like those guys in the back, I cut the head and feet. Then take him down to Marty and he fixes him up like taxidermy stuff. When I sell him to guys that come out here hunting on the weekends, we split the money. I guess the guys that buy him take him home a hang him on the wall say and they shot him. I don't really care what they do with him, all I know it's working out real good for me and Marty. Easy drinking money. A few minutes later, we turned down a rutted dirt lane into the club grounds. About a mile in, the outline of an old, gray farmhouse loomed in the distance. The faint sounds of yelping and howling grew ever louder as we approached. A rusted cyclone fence surrounded the place which bore a spray-painted sign reading whites only, no Jews neither. Moose stopped the truck at the gate behind which three snarling, drooling mongrels darted back and forth, with teeth bared. One looked to be a Doberman Shepherd mix and the other two appeared to be half Rottweiler and half Shepherd. No matter what the mix all three looked mighty mean. He leaned out of the window, cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted towards the house. Hulse, get these goddamn mutts out of here. Hulse immediately appeared on the porch, put his fingers to his lips and release a loud, shrill whistle with a simultaneous yell. Rudy. Herm. Joe. Get your asses over here, now. All three reacted instantaneously as if a magical switch had been thrown. They all turned in unison and silently raced back to the house. Moose got out of the truck, opened the gate and slid back into the driver's seat. Fucking dogs are a pain the ass but I'm glad we got them. They do a good job of keeping people from sneaking round when we're not here. Only problem is they do their job too damn good. Seems like the only guy that can really control them is Hulse. The rest of us, sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't. I got a couple of pretty good marks on me out of him and he pulled up his shirt sleeve to reveal a three-inch bite scar on his forearm. We drove through the gate and into the yard. Moose got out of the truck and I sat stone still. 
I could still hear barking and howling coming from behind the house. Well, come on he commanded. Then sensing my fear, he added, all that noise is the hunting dogs out in the back. They're all penned up and besides they won't hurt nobody. All they want to do get out after those birds. I still remained in the truck. Listen man, come on, we can't go hunting in the truck. He paused and then continued. Don't be worried about them other dogs. Hulls got them all chained up. They're not gonna bother you none he added reassuringly. I took a deep breath, got out and followed him towards the house. Here, wait a minute he said and then he led me around the side of the building and pointed. Off in the far corner of the field all three were chained each to an old, rusted out car with the door removed. Each had his own makeshift dog house. One was a 72 Torino and the other two appeared to be old Chevys of early 80s vintages. On the other side of the field were the pens contending the hunting hounds which continued their yips and howls. Let's go inside he continued and prodded he me back towards the front of the building. We entered through an old, patched screen door which slammed behind us. It was a large room with rows of deer heads and antlers adorning each of the walls. Two old, well-worn, stained sofas were in the center and three equally disheveled chairs stood in the corners. What served as a coffee table was a door mounted on four upright cinder blocks. It was strewn with empty bottles, filled ashtrays and gun mags. There was acrid odor in the air, a combination of stale smoke and beer. On one of the sofas sat Hulse, next to him was Ha Ha and across from them sat two guys whom I had never seen before. All were dressed similar to that of Moose, flannel shirts, faded blue jeans, hunting vests and high-top boots. All remained seated with their feet up on the table as Moose and I entered. Hulse looked up and announced, Guess we're all here now. Ready to go and get us some birds. Man, that's some outfit you got there. Hope you shoot as good as you look he continued. Everyone laughed. I smiled. These guys are going with us. This is Jume and he squeaked as he motioned towards the two sitting opposite him. I immediately understood why the big one of them was called Jume. I didn't even have to ask. He looked to be at least 6'5 and maybe 250. When he finally stood up, I knew my estimate was probably a little short. I'd say 6'7 and 275 would have been closer. Christ, I thought Moose was big, shot through my mind. Then the other man spoke. So, this is the guy you were telling us about, the bartender down at the shaft? As soon as I heard him speak, he too gave away his nickname, Squeak. He had a high-pitched voice like that of a prepubescent boy but certainly not a body to match. Although not nearly the size of Jume, he appeared very broad and bull-like. I reached over to shake hands and got the fist bump from each along with an unenthusiastic how you doin'. How about some coffee before we go? Your special blend if you know what I mean? Moose asked Hulse. You want some biker's brew, slick? He replied looking straight towards me. I remained silent. I wasn't sure if he was talking to me or someone else. Slick. That's what we're gonna call you he continued. Like city slicker, you know. And now that I see you in that getup you do look pretty slick, so that's a good name all around. Joom come up with it before he even seen you just from hearing about ya. Well if it was Joom's idea, I certainly wasn't going to dispute it that was for sure. So, from that point on I was known as Slick. Hulse went into the kitchen and returned with black coffee for each of us. It had an odd taste, 
not unpleasant but distinctly different from any coffee I'd had before. After five minutes or so of hunting stories and halfway through the cup, it happened. Suddenly, everything was faster, smoother, and better, like my mind had been tuned into higher vibrations. My thoughts became streamlined and focused and my blood felt like it was filled with little bubbles tingling through every part of me. I didn't feel drunk, just like it was my very best day, I was the very best version of myself that I could possibly be. My thoughts were then interrupted by Hal's Hulse's Brutridinia. I looked over to see Squeak speaking. I didn't know what I should say. Pretty good stuff, huh? It's gonna make you aim a whole lot better, I can tell you that he continued. I still didn't respond. It's got you pretty well stoked didn't it? Chimed in haha. Yeah, I guess so I stammered back. What the hell was in that coffee? Are they poisoning me? Flashed through my mind. My questions must have been apparent in my expression. It was as if June was reading my mind. Just put a little pinch of meth in. Just enough to get a bit sharper. We're much better shots when we get pumped he explained. Now, I realized why the coffee tasted so bitter. I never did too much hard stuff before. I did lots of pot and hash in the old days and once in a while some coke but never speed or heroin. This was out of my league, but it was too late now. I was already amped. The coffee was finished, and we all marched out the back door with shotguns in hand. I was the last to leave and called out to Hulse as I shut the door behind me. Not gonna lock up? Nah don't have to. Ain't nobody around here gonna mess with us, not after word got around bout the last one who did. Right, Halsey? shouted Moose. Hulse didn't reply but merely looked back with an acknowledging glance and continued over to the hound's kennel. He released all three of them. Then we spread out through the fields of high grass with the dogs eagerly leading. I was paired up with Moose and one dog, Joom and Squeak with another and Hulse and Haha with a third. I could feel my heart pounding in the veins and my neck throbbing with each beat. I wasn't sure if it was the drug, my own paranoia or a combination of both. In any case, I was on high speed and on high alert. We must have walked a couple of hundred yards into the field. It felt as if it had taken hours but in reality, it was only minutes. Suddenly, our dog Jake stopped dead in his track. The thunder of a gun blast instantly erupted from behind me. Holy shit, flashed through my mind as I anticipated the pain that would follow. I froze awaiting its arrival. I was sure that Moose had shot me. Got him! I heard Moose's voice and I looked up to see a shower of feathers falling from the sky. You gotta be faster to get him before me. You gotta pay more attention to old Jake here. He don't stop and point like that for no reason. He sniffed one out when he does that. Then... As the gun smoke from his shot drifted over me, he added you shouldn't get in front of me like you did. You gotta stay alongside of me. I come pretty close to shooting you on that one. Next time it might not work out that good for ya. I was alarmed and relieved simultaneously. I was relieved by having not been shot as I had expected but I was alarmed by the tone of Moose's voice. It gave me the sense that if he had hit me, he wouldn't have necessarily considered it big deal, as long as he got the bird. Jake raced over to thrashing carcass, picked it up and brought it back to Moose. He immediately took out his knife, slit its throat and held it out at arm's length for a minute or so to let the blood drain. Just like Squeak he said. I was perplexed by his remark. What do you mean? I asked. 
didn't you notice his voice? You had too. Yes I answered expecting him to continue and he did. You saw the scar on his neck didn't you? Well, it seems Squeak was pretty good with a knife when he got into a fight. About six years ago he got into one with a guy who was better. The guy cut Squeak's hand and that made him drop his knife and then sliced him real good right across the throat. I got Squeak to the hospital just in time and he made it. They saved him, but they couldn't fix his voice. He couldn't even talk for over a year. Then when he finally did, he had that squeaky high voice and he's had it ever since. That's when we started calling him Squeak. Moose then stuffed the bird into the knapsack he was wearing, and we continued forward. This time I walked in perfectly parallel, lockstep with him. About a hundred yards further and Jake again froze in stride. I immediately looked to a clump of high grass in front of him and saw Cockbird spring skyward. I reflexively raised my gun and followed its path just as Uncle John had taught me. I pulled the trigger, the gun kicked and sent the bird shot on its way. A millisecond later, I heard another blast coming from Moose's gun. I could see his pattern against the sky far to the right while mine struck its target clean, sending the bird to the ground. Again, Jake did his retrieval and brought the quarry to Moose. He once again he slit the bird's throat and held it out to drain. Here you go slick. You got him fair and square. Mine didn't even come close he said while holding it out to me. I gotta hand it to you, I didn't think you were gonna be as good as you just showed. Ain't too many guys around here that can beat me to a bird like that he added. I smiled and said nothing. I certainly wasn't going to tell him that I was sure it was just dumb luck on my part. His compliment set me more at ease as we continued the hunt. It seemed he had gained some respect for my hunting ability and that would probably go a long way with these country guys. By the end of the hunt, I had one and Moose had two. It was just the way I liked it. I couldn't have planned it better. I didn't want to appear as skill less and then again, I didn't want to outdo Moose either. I had heard numerous shots from the other side of the property and wasn't at all surprised to see everyone with at least one pheasant and that too pleased me. I remembered times when my father and uncle had gone hunting and came home empty. It made for very sour dispositions and I surely didn't want any of my newfound friends to come home in a nasty frame of mind, especially being all cranked up as we were. By the time we got back to the house, the effects of the biker's brew had begun to fade. It must have been only a pinch of meth as Hulse had said. Everyone sat in the living room and recapped the day's events with beer and boisterous shouts and laughs. When it was over Moose and I got into his truck and headed home. I had to admit to myself, as difficult as it was to do, I had a pretty good time with these guys. It was like hanging around with a bunch of hillbilly fraternity guys. Lots of good stories, laughs, beer and of course, the juiced up coffee added to it too. There for a while, the thoughts of Richie and the reason for my coming to Cannonsboro were out of mind. I was caught up in the comradely and the party-like atmosphere of the day. Moose dropped me off at the shaft. I drove back to Sally's place with pleasant thoughts of the day's events rolling around in my head. Maybe it was the high that had led me astray for those temporary moments. Maybe it was the thought that I hadn't decided what I would do if I did truly discover the identity of Richie's killer. Could it be that I unconscientiously didn't want to find out, precisely because I had no idea of what I would or could do next? Maybe that was part of the reason I found myself enjoying their company so much. Its diversion helped to forestall the inevitable decision, I knew I would have to eventually make. 
I found myself eager to hunt with them again. I told myself it was because I was anxious to find Richie's killer, but I wasn't sure if that was completely true. Could the real reason be my anticipation of another good time? I couldn't be sure. All I knew is I would definitely go with them again, if and when I was asked. When I finally arrived at Sally's I found her seated on the front porch, nervously rocking back and forth. As I pulled in, she leapt from the chair to greet me. I'm so glad to see you're okay. I was so worried about you, she blurted and threw her arms around me. I was fine. No problem. It worked out really good I reassured her. We walked into the house where dinner was waiting. Got a bird today. It's in the car I announced with a bit of pride in my voice. Wow, guess Uncle John's a pretty good teacher she replied. Sound like we got tomorrow's dinner. I'll take care of it later she added. After we ate, Sally and I returned to the front porch to enjoy the cool evening air while I told her of the day's events. Halfway through my story, I paused for a moment and then spoke. You know I gotta ask you something Sally. When we left the house to go out into the field, I noticed they left the door unlocked so I said to Moose, not gonna lock up? And he said nah, don't have to. Ain't nobody around here gonna mess with us, not after word got around about the last one who did. What did he mean by that? I wasn't about to ask him. I was high as the sky, but I still knew that the answer I would get probably would be something that would make me even more nervous than I already was. I could kind of tell that from the tone of voice. So, I just let it pass and figured I could find out later. She hesitated. Here's what I heard around the shaft and generally stuff you hear there is pretty much true. It hotta be two or three years ago that the guy who owned the property decided he was going to sell it for housing, I guess. Well, the guys that belong to the hunting club which is really the Don weren't happy about that at all. You see, that hunting lodge so to speak, is really their headquarters. It's been for years. I don't think the owner of the property even knew anything about it. He lived in New York and I don't think he ever even came out here. He just stayed home and got the checks from Hawkins, the police chief, whose name was on the lease. I suppose he figured he'd sit on the land until he could get a good price for it and in the meantime, he was getting rental money. So why would he even bother to come all the way out here to look at it? There was really nothing to look at anyway, just an old farmhouse and a lot of vacant fields. When the club found out that he decided to sell it to a developer they got Hawkins to call him to come out. He gave him some cock and bull story about violations or whatever. Anyway, he did get the guy to come out and they all met, that is, some of the club members and the owner. Well, they couldn't talk him out of selling it and he said he was going back to the city and finalize the housing deal. One thing led to another and they somehow got him out to the farmhouse, and it seems then all of a sudden he disappeared. What happened to him? I interjected excitedly. She paused. They never found a trace, not so much as a hair. They had all kinds of cops out here, not just Hawking's cops but the Stadies too and even some feds and none of them ever found a thing. When I kinda got a little nosy about the whole thing, the comment was. The three dogs they've got up there, they ain't being underfed. That's all I know about it and to be honest, after hearing that, I don't want to know any more. There was a silence. I swallowed hard. Now, remember this is only hearsay, but I never heard anybody say that it wasn't true. And to put the cap on it the guy's name was Rubenstein, a Jew. So, 
with that, it sure wouldn't surprise me if it was all a hundred percent true she concluded. Wasn't the property inherited then? I asked. Yeah, by his son and he was going to sell too but he sure wasn't going to come here. He knew better after his old man disappearing like that. He was going to do it with lawyers and real estate people and never came near the place. How is it then the club still has it? I asked. Evidently, again this is just from what I hear the Don is a branch of a big operation. They have brother clubs as they like to call them, all over. So, what they did is they called their New York City brothers and had them talk with the son. Now what actually happened I don't know? All I know is the land still isn't sold and it's still the hunting grounds for the club. Maybe it was more than a talk if you know what I mean. In any event, I guess that talk they had was real convincing she answered with a smirk. Sally's story made for a hard night's sleep. I don't think I got more than an hour's worth. I awoke the next morning, or should I say, got out of bed, with Sally's words still running over and over through my mind. Her story was disturbing and alarming to say the least. I knew when I started this adventure that I wouldn't be dealing with the nicest of people but from what she had told me they were even more sinister than I had expected. Any of my feelings of friendship with them were crushed. I was ashamed of myself for even having had fleeting thoughts of comradely. I tried to quell my embarrassment by attributing them to the drugs and assured myself that I would continue as I had originally planned. I would find Richie's killer and exact vengeance. I wouldn't allow myself to be sucked into their evil band. However, the necessity of false friendship remained. I was sure that I must still continue to buddy up with the club if I was to find out the truth. After hearing Sally's story, I knew it was going to be harder to get my courage up and my game face on for the next encounter. Additionally, the same old problem still haunted me. I hadn't decided what I would do, if and when I did find out the truth. I had fantasized several times of luring Hulse into a situation where I could just kill him and be done with it. I could end my anguish of indecision. Every time these thoughts occurred a voice in my head kept repeating. How would I lure him? Is he the killer? Am I sure? Should I kill? Could I kill? How would I kill? I had no answers to any of these questions and so, as they occurred, I immediately forced my mind to wander away from those thoughts. I knew I would eventually have to answer those questions with conviction but for the time being, I would just blow them off as I usually did. I'd worry about them later, if and when the time came, I told myself. During the ongoing weeks, I was invited to the club several more times. Each time my apprehension rose to a crescendo when I arrived at the farmhouse and then ebbed to feelings of sociability as I left. The constant banter during each and every visit centered around hunting, pranks played on one another and inane babble about nothing of consequence. Racial slurs flowed freely throughout every conversation but were not voiced with animosity in spite of the inbred bigotry being evident. The terms they used appeared to be just part of their upbringing and their innate language pattern. Never a word was uttered about any of the things of which local gossip had suspected them. Honestly, I was somewhat relieved. It meant that I didn't have to face the decisions that I was afraid to make, not soon anyway. They could be delayed but for how long? 